Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us here. Um, and um, we are now switching gears a little bit and talking to guests we have here in the studio with a project they're working on. They've been, it's been too long since they've both been in our studio here, but they're here now. We're here with Taya Graham, who is a special correspondent reporter at the Real News Network, and Steve Janis, who is an investigative reporter at Real News Network. And as Taylor said, we're having a Real News Network yeah. morning. I guess we are. <laughs> yes, we're not, seems like <laughs> it. <laughs> we're talking on a project outside of Real News Network, which is really interesting. Uh, and welcome to the program. Good to have you both here. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Mark. Really Thanks for having us. We really here. appreciate it. The friendliest town on the eastern shore. Yes. Well, this is actually part of our work at The Real News. We've been reporting on a situation in Pocomoke, Maryland, which people don't know, maybe know, is the Lower Eastern Shore, for about a year and a half after they fired their first black police chief, Calvin Sewell. Who was a former Baltimore City. For, who was a former Baltimore City homicide mm-hmm. detective. And full disclosure, someone I wrote a book with called Why Do We Kill? And he moved down there and implemented sort of a community-style policing. You know, he was kind of a done with the tactics in Baltimore, you know, sort of the aggressive zero tolerance. And he moves to Pocomoke. Which and is then, half black and half white. Ha- good point. Good mm-hmm. point. Right. Uh, it's a town of about 4,000 people. Very good point. Half black and half white. And he Im- implements this uh, sort of community-style policing where he walks in the neighborhoods, orders his officers to walk in the neighborhoods. And, you know, according to him, according to everything we looked at, crime went down significantly. So fast forward to 2015, July of 2015, and I get a call from him. He says, Stephen, they're going to fire me. And I'm like, why are they going to fire you? And he says, just get down here. And so they end up firing him. Now, as the story evolves, it turns out that he says they, re- he, they fired him because he refused to fire two African-American police officers. And Tay, you can talk a little bit about that, that conflict. Sure. Well, um, Lieutenant Green uh, was one of the first African-American police officers ever to be appointed to the Worcester County Drug Task Force. And Kelvin had a hand in having his promotion there. Well, while Lieutenant Green was there, he experienced what was referred to as a racial hazing. So he received um, food stamps with President Obama's picture superimposed on them. Uh, Officers would use the N-word around him or play videos where the N-word would be heard. Uh, He was actually driven by a fellow police officer to a place he was told was KKK Lane and was explained that the Klan used to... uh, lynch people in that area. So when he actually filed his EEOC complaint after asking them to stop using the N-word around him, he received a bloody dead deer tail placed on the windshield of his car. Yeah. So this police car is personal car. Just curious. His personal car, I believe. His personal car. Yeah. So this this sort of, you know, but in 2014, uh, I think, I believe, the, the, uh, the Maryland State Police did an investigation and sustained his complaints. And they had what's called a reconciliation meeting, which, of course, is what the EOC normally does, say, get both parties together to try to sort of resolve it. And he, and he showed up, and so did Savage. Well, Savage was actually the detective, and Lieutenant Green showed up. And after that, something happened. Kelvin was getting repeated calls and, and requests to fire both of these officers. And he refused to do it because he said, you know, a person who files an EOC complaint is protected under the law, and right. you're not allowed to fire them. So he gets fired. Uh, after a year of really getting badgered to do this. And during this process, uh, you know, the community is in an uproar because the community really likes Kelvin and they like the style of policing he does. So we go down there and it's just absolute, you know, chaos. People are protesting. Uh, the city council meetings are incredibly contentious. We actually get kicked out of the first one. Right. I've never, as a press, in my experience in the press, I've never right. been we, kicked out of Didn't we have the uh, ACLU file on our behalf yeah. because they kicked us out of we the We filed an open right. meetings act complaint. But, but we, we literally got kicked out. They told us we couldn't turn our cameras on. The state police were telling us this. It was an amazing um, mm. you know, yeah. breach of free press. And yet we filed an open meetings act, which actually uh, – 
um, you know, we the state ruled in our favor. But nevertheless, so the, the, you know, as this sort of unravels, the, the people in, in Pocomoke, the council, which is uh, almost all white, uh, were intimating that Kelvin, you know, did something wrong or that he, he was somehow. Uh, I'm not saying corrupt, but you know they would they would sort of intimate that he was incompetent. Well, didn't and, they? Wasn't he convicted of? Well, yeah. Well, that's what I'm getting. Yeah. Right, so, right. so what happens is he files a lawsuit um, alleging discrimination, a federal lawsuit, which the Justice Department has since joined, and the Justice Department uh, is joining the officers and saying they they were discriminated against. Plus, EOC ruled in his favor, ruled in their favor, and said they they suffered discrimination. Well, about a month or two after the lawsuits filed. Uh, State prosecutor investigators, Maryland State Police investigators, who used to be part of Maryland State Police, show up at Kelvin's house, knock on the door and say, uh, we need to talk to you. And Kelvin was really unclear, you know, from the interviews we've done about what it was about. But it turns out that the state prosecutor was investigating him for an accident which occurred in 2014. Uh, where a local African-American man uh, drove into two parked cars and drove his car around the block and parked it and called police. And they allege that he was... um, Shown some kind of favoritism Mm -hmm. because I believe it's because Kelvin is a Mason and this African-American Corrections Institute officer was also a Mason. So they're implying that it was some kind of... Uh, favoritism shown there. But there was only property damage done. Um, the insurance covered it. And it seems that this was investigated after yeah. well, the EOC so, complaint yeah. was made, not before. Yeah, after the EOC complaint. So, so. The, his his lawyers allege that this is actually retaliation. So, and he now works from State's Attorney Mosby? Yes, yes right? he works from Maryland Mosby's He's office. He's chief yes. investigator chief from, from, Maryland. For, from Maryland Mosby. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I'll take a step backwards here. And folks, of course. Do join us here at 410-319-8888. Many of you have family and relate to the Eastern Shore and know the Eastern Shore from the Eastern Shore yourself. So yeah. do call in. We were talking about that yesterday with somebody here. I mean, um, now, the, the Eastern Shore, um, <laughs> the Eastern Shore is, you know, I always refer to it as Baltimore's Mississippi and Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. a, a, a relatively uh, apt description of someone we spoke to often calls it, you know, 21st century Jim Crow. But the difference is, is the Eastern Shore, even though I've been participating now in, in organizations that are bringing black and Latino and white communities together around Salisbury to to to, to fight the big chicken, mm-hmm. um, which has been a, a landmark, seeing these groups come together and work together in unity, which is, I think, really important. Mm, yes. Absolutely. The other side of that is that um, unlike Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and other southern states, no matter how you debate and question what establishment politics means, um, the, 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 those places have black folks in power, in communities, in police, as mayors, as city council people, as business people. Mm-hmm. That's not taking place in the Eastern Shore. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pocomoke has – no, no. Pocomoke's a perfectly good example. The city council is um, – it has five members, well, with the mayor, <clears throat> six members, and only one African-American. And one of the things that came out when we went down there was the 4th District, which is um, almost 90 percent African-American, has a white police officer representing this district. He was not elected. He was appointed by the council after the African-American candidate suddenly withdrew right. and without giving proper notice, letting the people of the community know that there was this open seat – he he came in. He was appointed. An African American woman tried to run as a write-in, and they denied her request. So 
one of the largest African-American districts with the highest concentration of people is actually represented by a white police officer from New Berlin. Who essentially was appointed, and it was actually a violation of the city council's charter mm-hmm. when uh, there should have been an opportunity for this African-American to you know, mount a last-minute campaign, and they denied her that. And, Mark, the point you bring up just really quickly, that was, I think, why Calvin Sewell was considered so important because they never had an african He was the first right. African-American police chief. Uh, they haven't had an African-American mayor. They only have had one African-American city council. And I think the, the Worcester County Board of Commissioners only has one African-American member. So you are absolutely right. There is very little evidence of any sort of positions of power in these communities, mm-hmm. and specifically Pokemon. I mean, it's, I mean, it's so backward. It's, I mean, it's, and it's obviously backwards, too. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just unbelievable this is going on in the 21st century. Yes. I mean, even from an establishment political perspective, as I can say. <laughs> right? I, mean, it's, I, I mean, mean, it's a Republican stronghold down there, so I wonder if that's why it's being ignored. I mean, when I first went down well, they there— they were I Democrats saw, for a long time. Now they're Republicans. They're, mm-hmm. they're staunch Republicans. Yeah, lots of Trump signs. I saw a giant billboard that had a picture of President Obama's face on it. Underneath it had the keyboard letters, Control-Alt-Delete. So that was the first thing I saw when I came in there. The second thing I saw was a Confederate flag on the back of a truck. And a la- as a matter of fact, the last time I was down there in the Walmart parking lot, there was a truck with a Confederate flag vanity plate with a tiny little noose hanging over the uh, rearview window mirror. Like, like you would like fuzzy dice, but it was a tiny noose. So people aren't shy down there about sharing what their opinions are about African-Americans. So what is the point of your documentary? What are you trying to do here with this? Well, I mean, I think what you see, there are several issues. Um, larger issues that I think this documentary and this story addresses. Number one is how do we police in communities? I mean, how do we police? You know, the idea always has been in Baltimore to sort of have extremely aggressive, large police department, and there's no other way to do it. Um, You know, you meet violence with vengeance. And that has certainly been, you know, uh, despite, I think, some of the the, the talk amongst politicians, as a reporter who's been on the ground, I, I haven't seen much difference in that. And the point is, can you police in a humane way and connect with the community? And does that, does, how does that policing have to be prosecuted? And one thing we've seen with Kelvin um, is that there is perhaps another way, because we've done a lot of talking to people about how he approached policing and how he humanized it and made it more effective in that way. And, of course, the second thing is, is how race... Um, if, affects our perceptions of the way people um, see, you know, good, bad, you know, see uh, someone, you know, politically, uh, how some how issues are framed politically through race. That's also another aspect of it. And I would also say that shows how absolutely destructive racism can be. At the first city council meeting we went to, the number of supporters for Chief Kelvin Sewell were pretty much split between African-American white. And at the second city council... His, people who supported who him? Who supported him, yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Well, yeah, he had support from both People ha- okay. were wearing T-shirts with his face white on it, holding signs, both right. white and African-American. The second city council meeting it was only African-Americans there. And it was almost as if a, the the word was put out that white people need or to stay home, that they had to race. sort of yeah. close ranks. Did you talk to folks in the white community about why yeah. they didn't show yes. up? Yes. Yeah. Well, one, actually, we spoke to one white person in particular who was the one who wasn't afraid to show up. And she said that people were scared. Her friends who were white that supported Chief Soul said they were scared about coming yeah. forward. That they, that they were plenty of white people who supported him, but they had been you know, sort of intimidated to a certain extent into speaking 
because there was great fear. I mean, you know, as you point out, you know, one thing you mentioned in the beginning about chicken, you know, the economy in these in these communities is compl- is is not very strong. So there's very few ways to to make a middle class living. One of them would be policing, right? And one of them is working for government. And you know, we we heard rumors of people getting fired uh, who had supported him. And so there there was definitely like I think a certain sense of once it was defined by race then things started to really change in terms of how people saw the issue and how people approach it, which is why this, I think this is an important microcosm of how you know, imbued races into every dialogue that we have, including policing, you know, where we perceive it. And, and, and it's important because I think people, uh, this kind of is a litmus test and shows how people uh, will completely change their opinion of somebody based entirely on the idea of race or, or you know, I mean, what was completely legitimate complaint about the Worcester County? And let's remember, too, there's also the aspect of the war on drugs. I mean, the Worcester County Task Force was known for prosecuting what would be the old school war on drugs. They would go into the black, the backburn, it's called, which is the poor African-American community and raid it continually. Right. And they, from the beginning, were trying to build a case against Kelvin Sewell, something we'll, we'll reveal. We haven't revealed yet. But they were they were from the beginning trying to build a case against him, interviewing people asking if he'd had sex with Kelvin Sewell, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that actually, we, we came across that recently, where someone working for the state of Maryland, a private detective, was going around town spreading rumors and asking people if Kelvin had, had sex with people. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really a kind of a classic play to damage um, an African-American man's credibility is to target his sexuality. And the thing is, is that race was pulling this community apart. There's only 4,300 people. It's like a high school. Everyone knows each other. Everyone has grown up with each other. And a lot of the people in Pocomoke City have been there for generations. So when we say that it tore this town apart, it really did. And it was divided squarely along racial lines. So, so where are you with this project? Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, so, you know, it, it, in terms of the, getting it done and, and you have this GoFundMe campaign. This, yeah. Right. right. So Indiegogo. Indiegogo, yes. I'm sorry. Well, we've done 27 stories for The Real News, so, um, and we're continuing to report on for The Real News. So we're going to use a lot of the footage that we've shot, and we're, we're going to continue to – we need to raise money to sort of continue to shoot more B-roll, the more interviews. Um, I would say right now we're still we're, – we're in, we're in the midst of production – you know, where we are still accumulating footage, doing interviews, doing coverage. I mean, obviously the trial we just covered where right. Kelvin was convicted, which is a whole other story, um, uh, is, go- is going to be a continuing part of the story. We, we start an Indiegogo uh, campaign, which you can find if you just Google the friendliest town on the eastern shore, which is, interestingly enough, Pokemon's motto. That's their motto. <laughs> <laughs> the friendliest town on the eastern shore. You'll see it. And so we're, we're in the process of fundraising and production uh, to, to get this done because we think it's just such a, a quintessentially important story. Right. And we've actually been down there, I believe, over 30 times. So yeah. there's some traveling, some more traveling we need to do as well. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, and what's the approach you're taking? I mean, what are you trying yeah. to uncover and do with this? Well, I think one of the things that you'll see, you know, when we finish it is that there's a lot of stuff going on in the background that's very difficult to cover or even provide proper context when you're reporting on the immediacy of the story. I mean, what we're trying to show is how the forces align um, against. You know, I think ultimately against this idea that, you know, I think this idea that that is very prominent in the the narrative of race of sort of, uh, I'm not sure what, it's like sort of a moral question. Like to the people in Pocomoke, the African-American community is, is is an example of failure. And one of the ways to reinforce that is to continue to create institutions 
that prove this failure, right? So if you have someone coming in like a Worcester County Drug Task Force continually raiding, you're continuing not only the, the narrative of failure, but you're continuing you know, the actual, actual instigating failure. And when you have a, a chief who's pushing back against that and saying, you know, we don't have to treat people this way. I'll help them find jobs. I will walk in the community. I will get to know them. I will solve their problems. Then you see the ultimate friction between why policing can't change in many communities Mm -hmm. because it's Mm -hmm. so integral to the narrative of failure and and constructing the narrative of failure. And I think that only way to do that and to to sort of – make that people aware of that is to tell the story in all its complexity. You know, the, the, the news shows or, or the, even the six and seven minute pieces we do don't, cannot really address the complexity of, that, of how that works. And I would say that it shows really clearly how racism damaged both the white and African-American community, and it it damaged their community safety. I mean, Chief Sewell had a plan of community policing that worked. It sounds very simple. He told his officers to get out of the car and walk. He told his officers to sign in at the bank every day on the hour to prove that they came through. Well, just as an example, one of the things that happened when Chief Sewell Mm. left, uh, there was a bank robbery. And I believe it was broad daylight. daylight. The Friendlies was robbed. Um, They took a dolly and rolled the vault from the Friendlies down the street. Uh, When Chief Sewell was in charge for about uh, four and a half years, there was not a single murder. In the year and a half that he hasn't been there, there has been four murders and a suicide. There have been broad daylight robberies. And and a lot of commotion on the streets. A lot of commotion on the streets. Uh, The young kids are now kind of acting out and brawling on the street in the way they weren't before. So his style of community policing obviously worked. Can you you actually put that at his doorstep, that he actually resolved that? Well, I would say that you can look at the numbers. You can say... During his tenure, there wasn't a single murder. Year and a half he's gone. There's five, well, four murders and one suicide. And then if you talk to people in the community, I mean, qualitatively, they say these things didn't exist before. Um, you know, I, we weren't there before, this, before he left. So all we have to right, can, right, can right, base right, it on right, are the right. people who live in the community. But they, they, they argue that this indeed did, did happen after he left. Does he still want that job? Oh, that's an interesting <laughs> you have to ask question. Him. I mean, I think he's. I think after what happened with the state prosecutor and the trial, makes it hard. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, they, the trial was a day. I mean, they wouldn't let him bring in expert witnesses, yeah. anything to question the credibility of the witnesses against him. He wasn't um, able to bring in the disciplinary records of the people who were testifying against him. You know, and it took the jury about twenty minutes. I mean, it was a. It was a day long trial, and the jury deliberated for. So under you're talking about an a man's. You know, thirty-year commitment to law I th- enforcement. I, I would, I would say this. I shouldn't speak for him, but I think he thought justice was going to prevail, and I think he felt that it did not. And I think he's very much affected by that. Yeah. I think he wanted to go back to Pocomo for the sake of the sake of the people that he really learned to care about. I mean, he joined the New Macedonia Baptist Church down there. He right. really became part of the community. So I think he wanted to go back for their sake and as well to be vindicated. But now, I mean, we can't speak for him. I don't know. It's a really yeah, good right. question. Or should you? Right. Yeah. Right. But right, right, right. I, I, something I will ask him if I, you know, whenever we interview him again, because uh, in the in the past he has said yes, I want to come back. Yes, and he I did. Want, he has certainly said, and he's told the community he wants to come back. But right. now I don't. I don't know how he feels now. I mean, uh, this is a, a it's a fascinating story to me. I mean, I think that uh, the knowing the Eastern Shore very as well as I do, yeah. um, I think, that, and I'm surprised that nobody has raised some of the issues that are affecting Delmarva around race and mm-hmm. around racial justice and equity and around representation, political representation. Yes. Right. I mean, that even our state delegates or others should be raising a mm-hmm. ruckus of black caucus about 
the lack of representation right. for black people on the eastern shore of Maryland. Well, we, you know, one of the from, sto- stories we covered in Talbot County was there is a statue on the courthouse lawn yes. in Talbot. Mm-hmm. Right. And we covered that. And you, well, so you know about it. And of Easton, course, you're talking about. Easton, yes. yes. Right, right. Mm-hmm. right. Which is, you know, a dedication to the Talbot boys. And the NAACP wanted it removed because it's on the courthouse lawn. And that's, of course, right near where the last lynching took lynching place. Lynching took place. That Cheryl and, and I wrote a book about and on the courthouse lawn. We yes. sat in the council meeting where they finally brought it to a vote. And an African-American president of the council, I can't remember his name, um, supported keeping the statue there, which mm-hmm. is right, you know, 30 feet from the Frederick Douglass statue. So, the, and, you know, when we were covering it, people, there were people yelling and screaming and some guy saying, you're taking away our history. Right. Um, you're trying to take everything. Yeah, exact, you're, tur- you're turning words. the Maryland song into a poem. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of hostility uh, and I can understand oh, why and people, one of the people was it's wearing, not just like, mm-hmm. you know, conflict, it's hostility. You know, it's oh, it's real. very open uh, hostility. I yeah. was just going to give the example of someone who was wearing a T-shirt that said, if at first you don't secede, try, try again. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great <laughs> point. Oh, they were sitting in the front God. of the council meeting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, uh, so again, where do people go to support, see the work you're doing and, and support it? Well, you can go to therealnews.com. There is a whole page dedicated to our Pokemoke reporting, which you can mm-hmm. click on. So you go to therealnews.com and click on the Pokemoke site. Or you can just Google the friendliest town on the eastern shore if you want to support this. We certainly need the support of the community to keep yes, doing this do. reporting. Um, you know, Paul Jay has been very supportive. But we had to do the documentary. We had to raise this money on our own, with Paul right. Jay being our executive editor. So the Real News has been very supportive. But we, to do this, we had to kind of go out and, and raise some money. And, of course, the Real News is a nonprofit, so there's nothing unusual about that. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, just well, go to the room. good luck with this. this is yes, a, thank, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having us. Thank we really you so appreciate much it. It's very yeah, nice of you. I really appreciate, appreciate it a lot. Thank the you. friendliest town on the Eastern Shore. Uh, Steve Janis and Taya Graham will be are producing this piece, both uh, working as reporters for the Real News Network. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks today. for having us. Thank you for having us. And, folks, I want to encourage you all to join us on January the 11th for the 14th annual Annapolis Summit at the Governor Calvert House in Annapolis. It's your chance to have your questions heard, your voice heard. Uh, when we talk, and you can talk with Governor Larry Hogan, Senate President Mike Miller, and House Speaker Michael Bush. Uh, for tickets, you can call Haley Polling at 443-524-8161. That's 443-524-8161. Or email her at hpolling, that's with one L, H-P-O-L-I-N-G, at thedailyrecord.com. But do be part of it and come down and be part of that for... Um, uh, for the opening day of the session, we'll be there from 7.30 in the morning to 10 o'clock in the morning. You can participate in it. There's a breakfast uh, and conversation with our state leaders. It's a good place to be seen and heard. Uh, so please do join us for the 14th Annual Annapolis Summit. That is sponsored by the Daily Record, Stevenson University, the Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, uh, the Mark Steiner Show, Maryland State Education Association, Alexander Cleaver, VPC, and WEAA. So we look forward to having you all be part of that. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our engineer is Andrew Melton. Uh, our production assistant uh, is Malikin. And our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org, podcast at Steiner Show, and share with your friends at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.